I invite you to open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to, again, to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. It's an easy one to find. Uh, Just go all the way to the end. A few pages the other direction, you're in it. Uh, Revelation chapter 3 today, as we continue uh, through these letters to seven churches that uh, that Jesus wrote or uh, commanded his apostle John to write down as Jesus appeared in a vision uh, to John sometime around the year 94, 95 A.D., about 50 years or so, kind of after the start of the church, after that first sermon at Pentecost preached by Peter in Acts chapter 2. Here now, several decades later, a couple generations of Christians down the road, Jesus appears in a vision to his apostle John to speak to his church. And he speaks specifically to his church in the world through writing letters to seven uh, real life, present day, uh, well, in the day of John, churches at Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Today we're in Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, as Jesus speaks to the church in Sardis. I don't know why, but for some reason, zombies have gathered significant cultural cachet in in our entertainment world. Zombies are everywhere. They're all over the place. Uh, Maybe starting with uh, um, uh, that that movie from the 50s or 60s. Someone will correct me about the date. I'm often wrong about movies. Uh, I was wrong about the kind of vehicle that Kevin Bacon drives in Footloose. It wasn't a red Chevy. It was a yellow Volkswagen Beetle. I've been corrected. I stand corrected. But that first zombie movie, movie, uh, Night of the Living Dead, I'll get it out. Well, it's fascinating to people, in part because it's terrifying. The concept of zombies is intriguing because they are these formerly human beings, still human beings that are dead, but they're not. Uh, they're dead, but they're walking around and they eat people's brains. I don't know. I don't like scary movies. I don't like being scared, so, I don't, so it's no surprise I don't really like zombies, but still they're everywhere. We have zombie movies and zombie toys all over the place. I think Lego probably makes little zombie uh, minifigs is what they call them. Zombie everything. How about a zombie church? Zombie church sounds like a uh, sounds like a title of a movie that's like straight to Netflix. You know, right alongside Sharknado and Velocipaster, which is a real one. Crocpocalypse. That's not a real one, but I'm willing to sell the rights to it. Zombie church too, right? Like, why not? Just right there in your lineup of things. Weird stuff. It's a weird concept to think of zombie church, this dead but living thing, this living but dead thing. Not really sure what it is. Zombie church may, as a movie title or a concept, sound ridiculous. We laughed at it. That's fine. But the reality is zombie churches are real. Churches that appear live, alive but are actually dead. They existed once. There was one at the church in Sardis. We read about it in Revelation 3. Rhonda read it this morning. And zombie churches exist today. They appear to be alive, but really are dead. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaks to the church at Sardis specifically to call them to repent of their spiritual deadness so that they might enjoy Christ's recognition of their faith before the Father. Now the question about how... How, how do zombie churches come about? How do churches that appear to be alive but are really dead inside, where do they come from? Well, in the case of Sardis, it came from pride. It came from their desire to seek a good reputation more than to seek the 
living testimony and witness of Christ in the world. And so here's the main idea of Jesus's word to the church in Sardis in Revelation 3 and his word to us today. Beware a good reputation. Beware a good reputation. As we see this warning come to the church at Sardis and through the church at Sardis also to us, we must come to care more about active, faithful obedience to Jesus than having and maintaining a particular reputation as a church. The recipe for creating a zombie church is to care more about what you think about yourself and more about what the world thinks of you than than about loving Christ and making his name known in the world. We've heard the text. Let's turn our attention to it. First, in the first part of uh, chapter 3, verse 1, we see Jesus speaking to the church at Sardis, to the Sardinians. I really want to call them sardines, but that's not (laughs) what you call them. Jesus and the Sardinians. To the angel at church at Sardis write, these are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. What do we know about Sardis? We've looked at the several different cities that we've seen uh, that to, uh, in which there's a church of Jesus that he is speaking to. What about Sardis? Well, as we said uh, several weeks ago before, when we started this, um, Jesus starts with a church at Ephesus, which was on the coast of Asia Minor, and he works north to the church at Smyrna, and then um, and, and then eastward to the church of Pergamum, and now he's moving uh, still east and now down south a little bit to the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was about sixty miles east uh, of Sardis. Excuse me, was sixty miles east of Smyrna, and about the same distance west of uh, church of Laodicea, which we'll look at here in a couple of weeks. It was in the middle uh, or lay in the middle of the Hermes River Valley, which was known for significant gold deposits. And so obviously anywhere there is gold, people are going to go and to mine the gold, to pan for gold there in the river so that they can become wealthy. And so Sardis was at one time a very wealthy city. It was itself home to many lavish and elaborate tombs to kings and foreign leaders, tombs uh, almost pyramid-like that rival even the, the size and impressiveness of the pyramids in Egypt. Sardis had a significant garment dyeing industry there, uh, a large deposits of ochre, which was used for uh, dyeing garments, red or reddish orange, have been found in archaeological digs there. We know that the city of Sardis itself was overtaken twice by invading armies because the people who lived in Sardis failed to set a watch over what they thought was an unscalable cliff on one side of their city. They thought, no one's going to bother to climb that cliff and overtake us. Well, some daring soldiers at a couple different occasions did and uh, led to Sardis' fall on a couple of occasions. The Sardis, uh, the city itself, was destroyed in the year 17 AD by an earthquake and, uh, and everything there in Sardis had to be effectively demolished and then rebuilt. Uh, Sardis was a, a city that was once great and had been, in the time of John's writing, sort of getting by on their past reputation of greatness, not altogether unlike what Jesus seems to be saying to the church there. So Jesus writes to the church in the city of Sardis. And how does Jesus, how does he identify himself? He does this in every one of the letters to every one of the churches. He he tells the church who is speaking to them. These are the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. 
We know that the seven spirits of God, as we saw it earlier in chapter 1, verse 5, that these seven spirits of God represent or are symbolic for the Holy Spirit. The, the fullness of the Spirit of God is in the hand of Jesus. We know from John's Gospel, chapter 15 and 16, that Jesus, the Son of God, along with God the Father, together send the Holy Spirit to indwell the hearts of those who have trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior. The Spirit of God is God's own spirit, the personal spirit of God, and Jesus has it. He also has the seven stars. You'll remember from Revelation 1 verse 20 that the seven stars, Jesus says to John, are the angels of the seven churches. Now, whether these angels are human leaders of the churches or those that would deliver the letters to the churches or whether these angels are, are actually meant to be uh, th- those spiritual beings that have some uh, influence or, or are assigned to provide help to those particular churches, this much is true. Jesus holds the spiritual care and leadership of the church in his hand. And this is the one speaking to the church in Sardis. The one who has the Spirit of God that indwells His people and the one that holds all of the leadership and oversight of the church in His hand. He is the one speaking to the church in this city. The same one who walks among the seven lampstands that are the churches is the one who holds all authority over every aspect of the church. So before we go any further, friends, know this, recognize this, that Jesus holds all authority over His church. As he speaks to the church in Sardis, he reminds them, you are mine. You belong to me. Everything that makes you my people, whether it's my Holy Spirit in you or those that are leading and guiding and directing you, those that are giving oversight to you, I hold all of it. All all that you are belongs to me, church. Don't forget it. Now, this is significant because I think sometimes as human beings who have hearts that are full of selfish pride at times, We like to think we're something. And as churches that have maybe been established, we are one. Our church has had a history of over 30 years. We're an established church. We've been in this building almost 30 years as well. And we've been in this community just as long. Uh, Established churches can sometimes have a tendency to think a lot about themselves and what they've accomplished. Look at our church building. Look at our facilities. This is our church. This is my church. These are my people. As human beings, we can, we can tend to be and want to be possessive over things that, frankly, friends, don't belong to us. Jesus said in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. The church belongs to Jesus. And in no uncertain terms to his assembly in Sardis 2,000 years ago, Jesus says, the church belongs to me. You belong to me. I hold everything that makes you my people. And right on the heels of that, he speaks directly to the Sardinians to call them to beware a good reputation, to take caution against a desire for being known as something. Verse 1, the second half of verse 1 through the first part of, through all of verse 3, tell us this. Jesus says to the church, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive. Literally, he says, you have a name that you live, but you are dead. So wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you'll not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Now to some churches, 
that Jesus has spoken to already in Revelation, he has said encouraging things. To the church in Smyrna in particular, Jesus says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, even though you're rich, I know the slander of those who speak against you. And he encourages them to press on in endurance. To the church at Ephesus, he says, you have this against you. You hate the work of those false teachers, the Nicolaitans. I don't like them either. I hate them also. That's good. Here to the church at Sardis, he does not start, though, with an encouragement. He starts with a condemnation, a direct warning. That's a little bit scary. A little bit scary for Jesus to to start with a warning to the church. He says, I know your works. I know your deeds. I know all the things you do. I know the outcome. I know the produce of your lives. Everything that comes out of you, I'm aware of it. I see it. Jesus knows specifically that they have a reputation for being alive. They have a name that they live. But in reality, they are dead. They are a zombie church. You have the appearance of life, but you are dead inside. Now, the exact nature of the deadness of the church in Sardis is not perfectly evident to us, even in the context of this letter. I think there are probably two likely options for for what has caused this church to have the appearance of being alive, but in reality, being dead, having a reputation of life, but really being lifeless. One option for their spiritual deadness could be evangelical negligence. They have neglected to share the word of the gospel with those who live in their city in Sardis. So on the one hand, the situation at Sardis, at the church there, could be quite similar to that of the church at Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus was this church that loved doctrine and loved being right theologically far more than they loved lost seeing lost people come to faith in Jesus. And so Jesus condemns, he confronts their loveless orthodoxy in Sardis or in Ephesus. This could very much be the same case that's going on in Sardis. They have an internal reputation. We are a church. We are something. We get together all the time and we do all kinds of things together. We could care less about the lost people who, in our city who don't know the gospel, but man, we've got a good thing going. They have a reputation among themselves that they are alive and full of the the life that comes with knowing Christ. But in reality, they have no outside, they have no external witness in the world. The name of Jesus is not known in Sardis by the way that they live. Zombie churches today can fall into the same trap of thinking themselves alive because of all the things that they do for themselves, but have no public gospel witness in the world. Zombie churches, like the church in Sardis, are, are, are a real possibility today. Churches that have large worship gatherings on Sunday mornings. Churches that have ongoing programs throughout the week for their members. Churches that have maybe large facilities and impressive facilities and all kinds of things happening within the context of their campuses and yet no active witness to the gospel in their neighborhoods or in the cities in which they live and to churches like that who care more about making a name for themselves among themselves rather than making a name for Jesus in the world. Jesus says, you have a reputation that you live, but you're dead. Another possibility for their deadness is also available to us. It could be, on the one hand, evangelical negligence. They care more about being together and more about being the church than they together, about having uh, uh, gathering times and programs and all that kind of stuff than they care about getting the gospel to the lost. Or they could be dead in the sense uh, that they fall into the the trap of, of giving off a misleading appearance. So on the one hand, they could be neglecting the gospel. On the other hand, the reputation of life that is there at the church at Sardis 
uh, might be because the, the, the church has a reputation of life among the residents of the city of Sardis. The Sardinians think much of the church at Sardis, of the Christians there. Now, if this were the case, this would have been quite an interesting result in that day for Christians. Because Christians were, at the end of the first century, so roundly despised and ostracized by almost every facet and every part of culture in the late first century, that for them to have a name that they lived, to have a good reputation in the world, would have been really strange and out of place for the church. Already we've seen in so many of the letters that, or to so many of the churches that Jesus speaks to in Revelation that these churches are undergoing a lot of significant persecution and oppression in the cities in which they live. And Jesus is saying, press on, endure persecution for my namesake, for the reward that comes to those who are faithful, even to the point of death. Here Jesus doesn't have to encourage the church in Sardis to, to persevere in the face of persecution because, well, maybe perhaps the city of Sardis likes the Christians. For them to have, for the Christians in Sardis to have been well received by their, by the culture, by the city in which they lived, it would have required them to do a number of things that would not have been consistent with the gospel. It probably would have required them to abandon many of the things that, that, that made the church distinctively Christian in that day. Worship of only one God. The confession that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. Abstaining from worshiping in pagan temples and giving sacrifices to the Roman gods. All those things that make Christianity weird were probably all the things that the church in Sardis, if the city of Sardis thought a lot of the church or thought that church is really something, those are all the things that the church would have had to give up in order to be liked by the city. If this were the case, the church may have had the appearance of activity in the city of Sardis, of social acceptability, but ultimately was theologically inactive. Though there was no gospel among them. They were active in Sardis. They were maybe taking care of people. They were maybe doing uh, uh, fun things in the city and being a part of the social life of the city. But when they got together, the gospel was absent. Zombie churches today can think themselves alive because of all the things they do for their community. But having no gospel content when they gather together, having no word of hope, having no word of truth that Jesus died for sinners and was raised again for the redemption of those who place their faith in him, having none of that on their lips in the world, they demonstrate that they have a reputation of being alive, but in reality are dead. Listen, it's a good thing for churches to care for the homeless in their city. It's a good thing for churches to Go and be a part of digging clean water wells in parts of the world where people don't have access to fresh drinking water. It's good for Christians to be involved in the cause of justice for the overlooked or the undervalued in society. But if as Christians we do all of those things without the gospel on our lips, without the hope of Christ in our message, we can be loved by the world and rejected by Jesus. We can have the appearance of being alive. Boy, that church is doing a whole lot of stuff in and for our community. But if the gospel is never present in what we say and how we live, friends, we demonstrate that we are a zombie church. We have the appearance of being alive, but we are dead. So Jesus speaks to this apparently alive, but really dead church in Sardis. Church that needs revival of some form. If they're really dead, they need to be revived. And so what is the recipe for revival that Jesus gives to the church? It's there to us in 
verse 3. And it comes in five commands, five imperative statements. He says, first of all, wake up. You have a reputation that you live, but you are dead. Wake up. Literally, be alert. The zombie church that thinks it's living needs a a rousing alarm to its precarious state. Jesus sounds that alarm for the church in Sardis and for every church that, that may fall into the same trap. Wake up, he says. You see, I hope the kindness of Jesus here, the mercy of Jesus in saying to this dead church, wake up. And just as we put smoke alarms and carbon monoxide detectors in our homes to alert us, if there should be a fire or poisonous gas buildup in our home, so also has Christ placed this alarm in His Word to rouse His church from their sleep, to take action lest they die. Wake up! You're about to burn alive in your sleep. You're about to be poisoned to death by your inaction. Wake up! Don't die! And strengthen what remains. This is a recipe for revival. Wake up, then strengthen what remains. There's some good news here for the church at Sardis. Not all is lost. Not all is dead. There is something of their gospel zeal, of the truth of the gospel that still remains in their church, even if it's just a little bit. And so Jesus says, strengthen what remains. Wake up and now get your legs under you again. Get to the gospel gym Lift heavy theological weights. Run around the evangelism track. Get back in the game of discipleship. Strengthen what remains. Don't let it dwindle. Don't let it atrophy. He says to the church that their works are not complete in God's sight. Which is to say they've quit early. Game's not over. Their obedience to Jesus has in time and and maybe with their desire for comfort has reverted to selfish introspection. They think more about themselves than they do about those who don't know Christ. It has maybe reverted to pandering to their own preferences rather than pressing on in obedience. It's turned from active participation in the work of Christ in the world to sluggish spectatorship. I'm just going to sit on the bench and watch other things. This is more comfortable here. So Jesus charges them, wake up, strengthen what remains, get back in the game. To be my follower is not to be a spectator. He says to them, third, wake up, strengthen what remains, and remember. Remember what you received and heard. Let's ask the obvious question. What had the church received and heard? What is it that Jesus is calling them to remember? What have they received and heard? This is participatory. The gospel. There you go. Praise the Lord. Absolutely. That is that is precisely what Jesus is calling them to remember. The gospel. It might might surprise you to know that Sardis was not the only church in all of the New Testament that had to be reminded of the gospel. It happened several decades earlier when Paul was writing to his friends at the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11, Paul speaks specifically to the church to remind them of the gospel. Now we know that the church at Corinth was a hot mess of a dumpster fire. They had all kinds of problems in the church. Partly because, I think, they've neglected the gospel. So Paul writes to remind them of it. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11, listen. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins 
in accordance with the Scriptures. That is to say that Christ died, Jesus the Son of God died for sins, gave His sinless life in the place of sinners because God in His Word said it must be so. Paul continues, I remind you that he was buried, that Jesus really died for sins, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Which is to say that not only did God declare that Christ would have to die, that his son would die for sins, but also that his son would be raised from the dead, that God would not abandon his Holy One to the grave. He had to be raised. And after he was raised, he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the other disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, says Paul. So as to to suggest, if you have any questions about the gospel that I'm preaching to you, go ask those who saw Jesus raised, though some of them have fallen asleep. He says, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I'm the least of the apostles, says Paul, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But then whether it was I or whether it was they, so we preach and so you believed. The church... At least twice, at least two churches within the first 50 years of their existence, the church at Corinth and the church in Sardis, had to be reminded of what they received and heard. They had to remember the gospel that saved them. And this is true for every church that is in danger of having a reputation of life but really being dead. They have to remember the gospel that saved them. The good news that Jesus, the only Son of God, gave His life for sinners, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, in glory and victory over sin and death and invites everyone who sees their need for a Savior from their sin to come to Him in faith and be saved. Remember what you received and heard, Jesus says to His church. Then fourth, wake up, strengthen what remains. Remember, fourth, keep it. Remember the gospel and keep it. That is literally obey it. Obey the gospel, Jesus says. How do we obey the gospel? Well, it starts with repentance of sin. It starts with recognizing that Jesus died for sins because I'm a sinner. And for me to receive Christ, I have to turn from sin and trust in Him. If I'm walking in sin, I'm walking away from Christ, not toward, to, not, not toward Him. I need a change. We obey the gospel by turning from sin and by trusting in Christ. By recognizing He's our only hope for salvation. He's the only source of life and eternal life for us. We obey the gospel not just by repenting of sin and trusting in Christ, but also by pressing on in perseverance in the Holy Spirit's sanctification. This is the will of God for you, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Your sanctification. He wants to make you holy from the inside out. He wants to change your will, your desires, your, your, your thought life, your heart life. He wants to change it to be holy like He is holy. And He's going to do this by the Holy Spirit in you. But you've also got to let the Holy Spirit work it in you. Part of obeying the gospel is embracing holiness and a life of sanctification. And also by walking forward in the mission of Christ. Jesus, after he was raised from the dead, before he ascended to the right hand of the Father, said to his disciples, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. We obey the gospel, we keep the gospel that has saved us, that we received and that we heard by proclaiming the gospel. So our recipe for repentance or for revival, wake up, strengthen what remains. Remember what you received and heard. Keep it. Obey it. 
And finally, repent, Jesus says. Repent. That word repent comes from the Greek verb metanaeo. I'll get it out. It's too many vowels all in a row. Which means literally a, a, a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin. Repentance, you've probably often heard, is like making a U-turn. Right? You're headed down the road of sin and selfishness and self-aggrandizement and self-platforming, whatever. And repentance is to turn from sin 180 degrees. Some people will say mistakenly, and I know they don't mean to, but I always laugh when they do. It's a 360 degree turn. No, repentance is a 180 degree turn. 360 degree turn looks like this. You just go right back to sin. Repentance is a U-turn. It's a turn away from sin and toward Christ. Do you know why we don't like repentance? I'll just say, like, instinctively, in our natural heart, we don't like repenting. If that's a surprise to you, well, surprise. Let me tell you why you don't like repentance. Let me tell you why I don't like repentance. And I'm pretty sure my reason is the same as your reason. Because when we repent, when we actually make that, or, or, or recognize a need for repentance, we have to recognize that in light of new information, we were wrong. We were headed in the wrong direction. When I'm driving in Albuquerque, the city that I grew up in, that I claim to know like the back of my hand, which is a boastful claim and not entirely true. When I'm driving in this city that I grew up in, I hate making U-turns. I hate making U-turns. Why? Because every time I make a U-turn in the city I grew up in that I claim to know like the back of my hand, I have to admit I didn't know this city as well as I thought I did. Do you know what's even worse than making a U-turn in a city that you claim to know like the back of your hand? Having to make a U-turn in that city with someone else in the car. (laughs) I've had to on occasion, uh, or or been asked, not had to, had the privilege of uh, when the Baptist Convention of New Mexico has had conferences held in Albuquerque in the past and they bring in conference speakers uh, to pick up those conference speakers and kind of act as their chauffeur around town. And there's nothing more mortifying than having a guest in your car in the city that you grew up in that you claim to love and know like the back of your hand and having with a guest in the car having to make a U-turn because you were going the wrong direction to admit to somebody else, I don't know where I'm going. But the truth of the matter is, if you're headed the wrong way, if you're headed the wrong direction, and you realize it, and you know it, but you don't turn around, you don't make a change of direction, ultimately you'll take yourself and everyone else in your care to a place that you never planned to go. We don't like repentance, but friends, it's necessary. A zombie church that looks alive but is really dead, and zombie Christians who look alive but are really dead, need humility to repent. I fear to say that many churches and many Christians who love a good reputation more than they love Jesus' glory in the world will never repent of that sin and they'll die in their disobedience, never seeing the reward for faithfulness in Christ because they simply don't want to admit we were wrong. But this is our recipe for revival. Jesus says you have the reputation that you live, but you're really dead. If you want to be revived, here's what it looks like. Five things. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Remember what you heard and received, keep it, obey it, and repent. Make a change of direction. It's not too late. 
But if they won't, Jesus gives them their consequences. He, he tells them what will come. And what Jesus warns for the zombie church who won't repent, who, who won't wake up and take care to, to see that the Spirit revives them, what Jesus says will happen to them is that they will be visited quickly by Him. He says, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. This speedy visitation, this possible removal even as a church is what Jesus warns to the church that won't wake up and repent. In a way, I think similar to that of the church in Ephesus that we read about several weeks ago, Jesus warns that if they won't make a change of direction, if they won't turn from their sinful selfishness, their sinful introspection, that this church in Sardis will find themselves suddenly visited by Jesus and notice he will not be for them, he will be against them. You will not know at what hour I will come against you. Not for you, not in support of you, against you. This doesn't mean that the church will be, that the Christians there will be condemned to hell, not if they're genuine Christians, no. But it does mean that Jesus will remove the church that gives no evidence to his grace and he'll replace it with one that will. We said several weeks ago in Ephesus, Jesus would rather have in Ephesus 2,000 years ago no witness to his gospel, to his life in that city, rather than having a loveless witness to him in that city. And so Jesus, I think, is also warning the church at Sardis, careful, I'm about to remove you because you're not giving witness to my name in the city because you're dead and yet you think you live. In light of this warning, beware a good reputation. Beware being, being well thought of by others to the point that you don't even preach the gospel at all. We have to ask ourselves, is First West a zombie church? Is First Baptist Church of West Albuquerque, do we have the appearance of life, a reputation that we live, but in reality are we dead? Now listen, I'm not asking this as an accusatory question. I'm not, I'm not asking it because I think we are. I don't think we are, but I'm asking the question as a necessary one. Even the church that refuses to ask this question, might we be falling into this trap? The church that refuses to even ask that question is already well down the road to thinking too much of themselves to even be able to entertain the thought of necessary repentance. So we have to ask ourselves, are we a zombie church? What do we care about? Do we care more about our our Sunday morning rhythms? Do we care more about uh, the facilities that we have? Do we care more about maintaining a presence on this corner than we care about getting the gospel into the hearts and the lives of our lost family and neighbors and to the nations? We have to be willing to look at ourselves and be ruthlessly honest about where we're inwardly oriented when we care more about maintaining the status quo inside this you know, seven-acre plot of land that we have and not so much about disrupting the status quo of sin and death in the world with the hope and the joy of the gospel. We need to see, where do I care more about myself than I care about those who need Jesus? Because zombie churches care more about thinking much of themselves or more about being well thought of by outsiders to the point that they'll neglect the preaching of the gospel altogether. They become inwardly oriented or so outwardly oriented that, that they'll make all sorts of concessions uh, to the gospel and to their faith that they become dead inside as a church we have to ask in light of the way that Jesus warns the church at Sardis are we like this 
as individual Christians, even as your pastor, I have to ask, am I like this? Do I care more about being well thought of by the people that I pastor, that I, that I keep up appearances with Christians rather than say hard things that might, need to, that might call us to greater faithfulness with the gospel? Do I, as a Christian working my nine to five at my place of occupation here in town, do I care more about just getting along there and, and being well thought of by the people that I work with so I can get promotions and raises and that sort of thing that I never talk about Jesus with those that I work with because that might hinder my promotion opportunity? Jesus says, beware a good reputation. Now, it's not wrong to be well thought of by outsiders. It's not wrong to be well thought of by people who, who live in our community and see our church and think, those are good people. But the question is, why do they think those are good folk? Is it because we're, doing, because we're nice and we do nice things and we help people feel good about the way that they're living? Or do they think that we're good people because we preach the hope of Jesus to them? That we care for their needs, but we carry the gospel to them also. And so people know that we love them and we love them enough to tell them what their greatest problem is, that it's their sin, that they're dying and they need life in Jesus. So Jesus speaks to this church, tells them, watch out that you not think too much about yourself or that you not do things so that other people will think much of you. But graciously, even with this hard word, Jesus gives in the final verses of this letter, encouragement to the church in Sardis, encouragement to overcome, encouragement to conquer. He says in verses four through six, yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in white for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. There's some good news for the church in Sardis, isn't there? There are some there in that city, in that church, who have not gone the way of the rest of the church. And they have kept their garments clean, as Jesus says. Now, this does not mean that they're sinless, that they're totally blameless in the world. But rather what it means is that they've not fallen into the same trap that the rest of the church has fallen into. And their reward for being faithful to Jesus, for pressing on in obedience to the gospel and sanctification and joyful living witness of the gospel in the world, their reward is great. They will be clothed in white and they will walk with Jesus in holiness. This picture of being clothed in white garments is a, is a picture of being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that, that we will have perfect fellowship with him. And it's a wonderful reward for those who are living and giving living witness to Jesus in the world. Now, these people in Sardis, those who have not soiled their garments metaphorically, are living examples to the rest of the church in Sardis of what it means to be victorious, of what it means to be a conqueror as Jesus encourages them to conquer, to the one who conquers. They will also be clothed in white garments. Jesus says everyone who overcomes the danger of keeping up appearances, the danger of desiring a good reputation for themselves or trying to build up their name in the world, the reward for the one who overcomes will be to be clothed by Jesus in white garments of his righteousness. This is a good reward. We who know our sin and our need for a Savior long to be declared righteous. We long to be right with God. And Jesus promises that for everyone who doesn't care so much about their reputation that that they're afraid to repent, he says, to those ones I will clothe in white garments of my righteousness. 
Further still, though, he promises them that he'll never blot their name out of the book of life. Now, this is not a threat to those who aren't obedient that he'll erase their name out of the book of life. Rather, it's a promise to those who endure in, in faithfulness to Jesus, even and all the way up to the point of death, that there it's an assurance, a promise, that their name is permanently written in Calvary's crimson-colored Sharpie in the book of life. Nothing can erase it. Nothing can take it out. Nothing can override it. It is written. And better still, the one who is unashamed of Jesus, the one who is unashamed of Jesus in the world, will be unabashedly presented to God by Jesus. He says, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Jesus, in his earthly ministry in Matthew chapter 10, said to those as he was teaching one day, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus gives the same promise to the church in Sardis. If you will invigorate, if you will have, by the Holy Spirit's help, your, your living witness revived, I will confess your name before my Father. Now, Don't be deceived. It is possible for people to do things in the world in the name of Jesus and yet not actually know Jesus. Jesus tells another story in another teaching. He says, there are many, many who will come to me on that that day, on that last day, that final day of judgment, and say, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And I will say to them, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. It is impossible to take the name of Jesus in the world but not actually know Jesus And so not be known by Jesus, not be confessed by Jesus. So when Jesus says, I will, and promises to the church at Sardis, when he says, I will confess his name before my father and before his angels, he is giving that promise to those who have done what is necessary when we hear the gospel. Those who have seen their sin, that they're headed the wrong direction. They've said, this is is not good. This is leading to my death. And my separation from God, I'm making a U-turn, I'm changing direction. I'm going to say to God, God, I can't, I can't keep going this way and live. I must make a change. And in faith in Christ, in trusting in his perfect life, lived for them. And his sinless death died for their sins as a payment for their rebellion against God. Trusting in Christ's victorious resurrection from the dead. They say, Jesus, my life is yours. All of me belongs to you. And all that I do, I will do in your name to bring honor and fame and glory to you. Not to platform myself. And to the one who trusts Jesus that way. Who who finds their heart transformed as they lean entirely and dependently upon him for salvation. Jesus says, you are mine and I will tell the Father that you are mine. Beware a good reputation. Jesus encourages the church to press on in living faithful gospel witness in the world, even if it means losing their reputation, even if it means changing the way that they've been doing things because they know they need to repent of selfishness. He encourages them with the hope, with the promise of being clothed in white, the assurance of their salvation and eternal life, of their perfect fellowship with him. And he says, I will not be ashamed to tell my father, you belong to me. In light of this warning and the encouragement that comes with it, 
Friends, I would just exhort us. Let us, as, as the members of First Baptist West Albuquerque, let us be a living church that loves Christ's name more than our own. Let us be a living church that loves the name of Jesus, the hope that is in Jesus, the joy that is in Jesus, the life that is in Jesus, far more than we love our own name, far more than we love even our our regular gatherings as necessary and helpful as they are, far more than we love the facilities that God has blessed us with. Let us love Christ. Listen, zombie churches are real. And it's a real danger that churches who, who glory in their own reputation face. The clear prevention and the clear remedy to the sickness is a love for the glory of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the majesty of our Savior. A love for the transformation of lives by the power of the gospel that surpasses anything that we love about ourselves. Do you want to know how you never become a zombie church? Love Jesus more than anything. Do you want to know the remedy? To being a zombie Christian or being a zombie church? Love Jesus more than anything. John the Baptist said regarding Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus must become greater. I must become less. Why? Because if I become greater, Jesus becomes less in the testimony of my life in the world. So John says, He must increase. I must decrease. And though John the Baptist literally lost his head, I dare say that none lived with a greater purpose and personal mission than him to make Jesus big. Is that so in our life as a church? That we live and breathe and sing and shout to make Jesus big. Is that so in our church? Oh, goodness, I hope so. I pray so. And and I pray that it would be more and more so with every passing day. But for that to be the case, it must be the mission and the heart's cry of every one of us as members of this church to make Jesus big. The purpose of a church will never be to make Jesus big if the purpose of its members is not to make Jesus big. Our every heart's mission and heart's cry must be to make him great and to love bringing people to him. Now, if that's your heart's passion... If your heart beats to make much of Christ in the world, praise God. Rejoice in that. Be glad in that. And hold fast to that passion and live it out with glorious abandon. Don't leave it behind. Keep on going. Even if other Christians in your church think you're crazy because you love Jesus so much, keep loving Jesus so much. Do you see today that perhaps you've cared more, though, about your own reputation or the name of our church? the reputation of our church in the community than than you have about the person of Jesus? Do you care more about your preferences being met? Do you care more about being well thought of by others? Do you care more about your Sunday school attendance than you care about making Jesus known in the world? If that's the case, then heed the call to revival from Revelation 3. Wake up. Strengthen your zeal for evangelism. Remember the gospel Preach it to yourself again. Obey it and repent. Know, my dear friends, that this cannot be the passion of your heart until Christ has changed your heart. It cannot be your mission. It cannot be the mission of our church to make much of Jesus until Jesus has changed us. And the remedy to being a zombie church, 
of, of loving Christ above all, this re- remedy, or this, this recipe for revival that starts with repenting of sin is also the only pathway to becoming part of Christ's people in the world to begin with. Apart from Jesus, all of us are like spiritual zombies. We are walking around as though alive, but spiritually lifeless, dead in our sins, not even aware that there's a better way to live, a source of life to connect to, a resurrection from our deadness to receive. But if your heart has ears to hear today, listen. There is life, and there is rescue, and there is forgiveness, and there is hope to be delivered from death to life, from sin to righteousness, from spiritually wandering to a citizen of heaven. Christ paved that way for your rescue, for your life, for your resurrection, when he gave his perfect life as a ransom for you on that cross. And he secured your path to salvation and your name being written in the Lamb's book of life when he rose from the dead in victory over your sin. And all that remains for you to know him and the life that he gives is to turn from the sin that has you bound to death and give your life and trust to this Jesus who holds in his hands all that is necessary for making his people. Will you let go of self and cling to Christ? Or will you hold on to death and lose him forever? Will you decrease so that Christ may increase?